cost of preaching. And so last week, um, just to recap, we were talking about John the Baptist, and we're talking about John the Baptist again this morning. Uh, last week's big idea was that uh, preachers of the gospel must point to Christ, that only Jesus is the Christ, that Christ must increase while the preacher decreases, and that Jesus' baptism is of fire. So that's what we were looking at last week. And then this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the big idea that declaring the truth will always make enemies. Always. And the three main points this morning we're going to be looking at are exhortations and reproof, um, number one. And second, reproving is not popular, number two. And number three, that prison or death are sometimes the vocation of the preacher. Let's look at the passage so we can get back into the context again. So we'll pick up at Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 15, and we'll go through verse 22. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts whether concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So again, that big idea for this morning is declaring the truth will always make enemies. Uh, that we're going to look at the idea of exhortations and reproof, one of the jobs of a preacher. The second point, that reproving is not popular. And number three, that prison or death are sometimes the vocation of the preacher. So first let's look at that idea of exhortations and reproof. So preachers are not just to call to give heartwarming messages. Some of you have seen a very famous uh, clip where an interviewer asked Joel Osteen, why doesn't he ever talk about sin and why he doesn't ever ask people to repent? And, and he said something along these lines, well, I just want to stay in my lane. That's not really my thing. I think I'm just here to kind of encourage people. And that's a paraphrase. I don't remember the exact words, but I've seen it many times. And, and the idea of a preacher or a pastor not being willing to talk about sin and repentance is a revealing thing. And then you have the health and wealth preachers who say, Jesus will make you healthy and rich, which a lot of people find very appealing. And then there's an idea that's kind of a, a newly phrased in the last less than a decade. Uh, some of you might have heard this term that was coined, I think, in 2014 called moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. And the term moral the therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism uh, was first coined by sociologists Christian Smith and Melina Denton in their 2005 book, Soul Searching, 
the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. And based on extensive research, they identified the predominant beliefs of American teenagers, even those who claim to be Christians. They named the core belief the, beliefs, the core beliefs they found, moral therapeutic deism, or MTD, uh, and these are the five core beliefs of moral therapeutic deism. Number one, they believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Well, that's at least a good start, right? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, remember these are things that the overwhelming majority of Christian teenagers in the U.S. believe. God, the number five, good people go to heaven when they die. The beliefs of moral therapeutic deism are moralistic in that they place a high value on being good as found in number two and number five above. Good is really defined by popular culture rather than the moral imperatives of the Bible. So tolerating behaviors the Bible calls sin might be seen as good while calling those behaviors sin might be seen as intolerant or hateful, which is bad. By the way, this information is from uh, Ask Questions uh, website, so if you're more interested in it, you can look that up. So the beliefs of moral therapeutic deism are therapeutic in that their primary value is feeling good about oneself. God's job is to take care of us, is what they believe. That's moral therapeutic deism. Have any of you heard that term before? It might not be very familiar to you. But it's kind of out there in theological circles, and it is a good way to sum up what a lot of these uh, young people believe today. So moral therapeutic deism does no one any good. No one can ever possibly be saved by that type of thinking. It's not the gospel. It's really no good at news at all. Uh, it's quite contrary to the good news that John preached the word exhortation in verse 18 means something like a pleading or entreating or urging. And yet at the same time, this word has an element of comforting. So most of us don't use the word exhortation in our day-to-day vocabulary, I would guess. Um, but the idea here is speaking a truth that has a comforting element and an encouraging element Someone who exhorts others, in a sense, is pleading with them to do something. And generally, this refers to something that will have a positive outcome. An example might be used this way. He exhorted them to follow God and obey his commands. That would be exhortation, exhorting. You see there's a pleading, yet it has a good intent and a hopeful good result. Moral therapeutic deism contains an element of exhortation, but it's incomplete. We say folks like Joel Osteen are exhorting their listeners, but that's incomplete. Prosperity Gospels preachers are exhorting their people to get rich, but this is a false gospel anyway. A preacher should be giving exhortations, and John the Baptist 
is an excellent example for any preacher, yet there must be a qualifying condition for this to be the right kind of exhortation. And what is that qualification? It must be biblical. Has to be biblical. You see, you can listen to all sorts of worldly people who will tell you to be a nice person, to find enjoyment in life, to think positive thoughts. All of these are good things, of course. The Bible tells us to be kind. The Bible tells us to find enjoyment. The Bible tells us to think good thoughts. The Bible, though, tells us to seek those things within a context. The best way to be a kind person, to find enjoyment in life, to think positive thoughts, is by thinking biblically, by learning God's plan and design for us. Biblical exhortation, then, is giving people positive encouragements, pleadings, and so forth that involve God's word, teaching it, explaining it, and commanding people to come to obedience. Ooh, that's a strong word. We don't want to hear that in the church. He's commanding us? No, God is. God's commanding. And so Luke 8, 30, 18 says, with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. The good news John preached was repentance. That was the good news. Repentance is good news. John was saying something that is based on truth. That is the gospel, that God calls all people to repent of their sins and that those who come in true repentance will receive mercy and grace. John was preparing people to put faith in Jesus by calling them to repentance. So John clearly was not preaching moral therapeutic deism. He was preaching a true gospel. So a preacher of the gospel preaches good news with many exhortations. These are not all positively presented in the sense that we make positive and negative statements. Um, a positive doesn't mean it is good or is bad, but positive means you're saying to do something. Negative means you're saying not to do something. So uh, a preacher makes what we would call positive and negative statements. A positive exhortation may be to call people to put faith in Jesus, and an exhortation with a negative command would be to say, stop sinning, right? Stop lusting, stop hating, stop your pride. And yet even those negative exhortations, if they're obeyed, have a positive result. And along with exhortations, sometimes what comes, what goes just a little further than the exhortation and a little more direct and a little more offensive to people, and that is called reproof. In verse 19, it says, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him by, uh, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done, and he had done a lot. Reproof, a reproach, is a little higher intensity uh, compared to exhortation. This may be more specific. In this case, John called out Herod for being with his brother's wife. Now, we have, come, we have something like this um, in the world that's more and more becoming acceptable. Um, and you see that all over, what the world says is acceptable. It wasn't acceptable to God, though. And John was speaking God's truth. So his commands are clear. God's commands are clear. Adultery is a very bad thing, but much worse when it involves family members, as it did in Herod's case. So this is like a gross, sick sin that Herod was guilty of. You don't hear most of the popular preachers on TV or radio doing much, if any, reproving. 
Can you imagine one of them calling someone out by name and naming their sin and reproving them? It won't happen. It won't happen because they don't want to lose their audience. The false preachers are very clever. It's no wonder they have people who would personally disagree with one another, but united in love and admiration for these pastors or preachers so-called. Why? Because they affirm everyone. And that's how you get people to love you. I'm, I think you're really cool the way you are. Then they, they also say, well, I just want to stay in my lane. But their lane is the, the, the path of least resistance when it comes to being popular and loved. If they reprove anyone at all, the ones they reprove are the ones who are trying to hold a biblical view. Andy Stanley is an example of this. He recently said to his congregation, and I have the quote here on the screen for you, a gay person who still wants to attend church after the way they've been treating you, I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than a lot of you. In other words, Andy Stanley said that LGBT people who come to his church have more faith than the people in the church. And I'm not taking this out of the context. I have actually watched the clip of this. I could do a whole sermon on why that's wrong. In short, if anyone comes to true faith and repents, they will be accepted, but true repentance means turning from the sin. And if anyone is in the church who claims to be a true believer with true faith in Jesus, they will fight against their sin to put it to death. And that's why Paul, when he listed all those sins, he said, such were some of you. A true believer no longer identifies with their sin. They identify with Christ and his righteousness. So it is impossible to call someone who identifies with their sin a person of faith because they do not have faith. If someone insists on remaining in their sin, that is proof they are really not saved. They're God-haters. They literally hate God. Can you imagine if Andy Stanley had said it a little differently? What if he had said this instead? An unrepentant, adulterous person who still wants to attend the church after the way they've been treating, I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do, and they have for, may have more faith than a lot of you. What if instead he said, an unrepentant abortion doctor who still wants to attend church after the way they've been treated, I'm telling you, they have a lot more faith than I do. They have a lot more faith than a lot of you. What if he said an unvaccinated or vaccinated person still wants to attend church after the way they've been treated? I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than a lot of you. Or an unrepentant child abusing person who still wants to attend church after the way they've been treated. You see what I'm going at? If you took any other sin that's less popular right now than homosexuality and put it in there, he would have been in big trouble. But he wasn't in big trouble. Not many in his congregation spoke against this. You see, you take any other sin or any perceived sin and put it in there, and Andy Stanley would never have said it. So why does he feel comfortable using a particular sin, homosexuality, and saying that people who continue in that sin have more faith than others in his congregation? Why does he feel comfortable for reproving his non-gay members for not accepting enough while at the same time commending those who are gay? Is that what a preacher does? Not a true preacher. The preacher who would do such a thing condemns themselves. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And Anne Lee Stanley is not alone. 
Many high-profile pastors say very similar things. You should not listen to Andy Stanley or anyone like him. He's a false teacher. I doubt he will ever listen to my sermon, but Andy Stanley, if you are listening, then you need to repent. If the gay people in your church have more faith than you, you should resign as a pastor. So why do these popular preachers and frankly many less known pastors, even with many smaller congregations, they say the same things. Why do they not call out sin? Why not offer reproofs as John did? It's just simply not very popular. Now, I, I have my next uh, idea, which is reproving is not popular. And I put in brackets there, biblical reproving is not popular because I want to say that with that caveat. I mentioned it earlier, uh, it is popular for many of these preachers to reprove those who are trying to be biblical. I can tell you from firsthand experience, when I try to be biblical, I have been called legalistic. Now, I want to tell you quickly, don't call someone trying to figure out what is biblical commands and trying to live it out to the best of their ability. Don't call them legalistic. It's not legalistic to try and be biblical. It's a shameful thing to call someone trying to learn how to live out their life in Christ in a manner worthy of their calling legalistic. That's not legalistic. Legalistic is demanding that people follow rules or procedures that are not found in Scripture. I've been at churches where they changed the service time. <gasps> you want to see legalistic? Try and change the service time. Legalistic is when you take your own preference and make it sacred and then try to impose it on others. That's legalism. Legalistic is not saying the Bible says we ought to do this, so let's do it. Or the Bible says we should not do this, so let's not do it. If you leave a church simply because of the service changed, the service time changed, you may be legalistic. The Bible does give us many commands and instructions. By the way, we're not talking about changing our service time this week. Actually, next week, daylight savings time is next week, so I should probably clarify that. <laughs> the Bible does, though, give us many commands and instructions, right? Trying to follow any of those that are in the Bible is not legalistic. Commanding things the Bible is silent on, that is legalistic. Do you see the difference? So now that that's out of the way, let's talk about this. Biblical reproving is not popular. Reproving those who are trying to be biblical is very popular. And there's a term being used, a derogatory term, that's a term that's filled with animosity towards people trying to be biblical that I've begun to see more and more, especially on Christian Twitter accounts. And the, the, the little uh, thing that they call people trying to be biblical is, that, oh, they're the Theo bros. All right, the, a, theo, a theo bro, as close as I can figure out, is a, a sort of way of saying someone who cares about theology. Many, many people who call themselves Christian have a visceral reaction to anyone who would dare bring up what the Bible says. So when people called out Andy Stanley for saying gay people had more faith than the rest, the defenders of Andy came out and said, oh, there go those theo bros again. In other words, those guys who are way too worried about being theologically accurate. You shouldn't be so worried about that. Rather than that being a positive thing, many so-called Christians say that's a decidedly negative thing, that you'd keep going back to the Bible like you do. Why would they want the Bible to define their behaviors of people when they instead can use the culture to define the Bible? And by the way, a lot of people did call out Andy Stanley, thank goodness, but some of us were actually waving a red flag about him years ago 
when he said we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the gospel. We shouldn't worry about the Old Testament anymore. We should unhitch it. That was his words. And then more recently, uh, he talked about how we need to stop talking and saying the Bible says. We need to say Matthew says or Mark says or Luke says. So, so some of us were already concerned then, and we were, oh, you shouldn't be so worried about that. You just don't understand the guy. What I do understand is that when you start whittling away at the authority of Scripture, you end up saying the gay people in your church have more faith than you. It's not unpopular to make fun of someone who's trying to understand what the Bible says and live it out. That's very popular. You can go on some of these Twitter accounts and stuff and see how many Christians go after the ones trying to be biblical. That's not unpopular at all. But it is unpopular when a preacher calls out real sin. It it is unpopular when the preacher calls out sin, and especially when it gets personal, like it did with John and Herod. Third main point, prison and death are sometimes the vocation of the preacher. We can see from the Gospels what happened later to John, and some of you know this story already, but I'm going to go to Matthew's account from Matthew chapter 14. It tells us more specifically than Luke did what happened in the end with Luke. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and He said to, oh, I got the wrong passage, sorry. Um, No, I got it, okay, sorry. (laughs) Matthew 14, is that what we have up? Okay. Um, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful that you have her. For, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a paddle, pad, platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now this is, talk about soap opera kind of stuff here. So Herod's having a birthday party, and this is, more or less a a drunken, terrible stag party type situation. And once everyone's kind of been liquored up, the dancing girls come in. And so Herodias sends her daughter in. Can you imagine this now? Some scholars think she was probably 16 years old or something like that. To do a provocative dance in front of Herod, and it says he pleased him, which is a euphemism to saying he really liked that. And being with all these other men, he makes this oath and says, I'll give you whatever you want. And so this daughter of Herodias, whose name is Salome, it's not in Scripture, but we have that from another historical account, um, goes and gets Herod's uh, attention in a wicked way, gets him to make a promise 
he shouldn't have made and gets him to do this act that is reprehensible. And we see that happening. Now, it's interesting that uh, there's a historian named Josephus we were just talking about in Sunday school class, and he wrote a little bit about Herod and John. And here's what he wrote. He said, now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John. So there were actually people that were saying, you, you got defeated in battle because of what you did for John. And these are not Jesus followers that were saying it. Josephus was not a Christian, but he writes about this. So he writes about John the Baptist. It says, Herod slew him, who was a good man. So even Josephus calls John the Baptist a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism, for that the washing with water would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now, in Sunday school, we were just talking about how a lot of historical accounts give us verification, not that we need it, because we trust the Bible is true, but we see that even, even secular, non-biblical authors confirm. Even a non-Christian author says what John was doing was calling people to repentance and purification of the body through baptism. And he continues on and says, Now when many others came in crowds about him, John, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might, be, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion. So Herod's worried that John's going to raise a rebellion because he's getting such a popular following. Because um, it says they seemed ready to do anything he should advise. So Herod thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when, he, when it should be too late. Accordingly, he was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle before mentioned, and was there put to death. So he doesn't mention the part about Herodias' daughter, but he does give the whole other description of how he was sent there to imprisonment and then death. And, uh, and so the Jews, Josephus wraps up this little section, says the Jews had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod, Herod and a mark of God's displeasure against him. So people were associating, even non-believers in Christ, associated the defeat of Herod in a battle with his uh, killing of John the Baptist. Josephus, again, was not a Christian, but here he records that Herod feared John, John the Baptist. Herod and his family, by the way, were full of murderers. They killed anyone who they thought may be a threat to their power. Um, they, later in the Gospels, we learn that Herod feared Jesus as well. And you just saw that actually in the, what I just read from um, the Gospel there, that he feared Jesus because he thought Jesus was John come alive again. And so Herod was just this guy who lived in constant fear of being deposed and losing his power. So that was probably a factor of Herod putting John into prison. But the main uh, impetus of it was that John was reproving him for taking his brother's wife and all the evil things he had done. But yet, Herod did not kill John at first. 
He kept him alive. He put him in prison, but he kept him alive. Perhaps he realized that John was in the right. But when the daughter of Herodias danced, he let his lusts in that moment take over. What will the preacher today encounter if he continues to preach the truth? Are we in a time that we will see preachers killed as John the Baptist was? Can any true follower of Jesus expect to not share in his suffering? Joel Osteen would say, no, you won't suffer for Jesus. He's going to give you your best life now. But Jesus said something a little different from what we hear from Joel Osteen or the moral therapeutic deists. In John 16, Jesus said this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, or churches. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Then what are we to do? We may be killed for our faith we may not be. Maybe there is a revival coming and we will, it'll be staved off for a while before we see that. But it is not impossible that in our nation the tide could turn quickly against those who desire to hold a biblical view. What then? How will we make it? Will we have the faith to be strong if this type of persecution comes? There's hope. When Jesus said these things, he was saying them not to scare people but to prepare them. They will, be, they will put you out of the synagogues or the churches. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Do you realize what this means? People who think they are doing the work of God will kill you for your faith. It will seem completely upside down. In fact, many people who have tried to be faithful have been driven out of their churches. If you speak up for biblical morality in many churches today, you will be sent away. I see reports every day of violence toward people who disagree on many different topics. Is it really hard to believe that we are very far from people killing you for your belief? People stand on a corner with a choose life sign and they get violently beaten and screamed at, having things thrown at them. You see, it's already happening in many places. Do you really think, Christian, that your life will never come to a place of persecution for your faith. Peter said that if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And he says suffering for the Christian should not be a surprise to us. 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 12, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, you shouldn't think that's strange at all if you're truly following Christ. But he continues and says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But how in the world are we supposed to do that? Are we strong in and of ourselves? Do we think by our own sheer strength we will endure these things? Do we put confidence in our own flesh? I would say don't. Don't put confidence in your own flesh. You do not have the strength to do this on your own. Any one of us, if left completely alone and facing the pain of trial, being ready to be thrown to the lions unless we recanted of our faith, most of us would give up hope and despair. We cannot do this on our own. 
But Jesus did not leave his disciples hopeless. He did indeed tell them to expect persecution, perhaps even to the death. And after he said this, he showed how we would endure. So continuing where I started in John there a moment ago, starting at verse 5, Jesus continues. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus did not leave us hopeless when we face persecution. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit always points to Christ. He always reminds us about Christ. He always glorifies Christ. And that's the the role of the Holy Spirit. And we should be thankful for God the Trinity, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. But let's remember that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of Christ and to strengthen us for Christ. And then also in John 14, he wrote about the Holy Spirit, or Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit, and uh, John wrote about it. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps him, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper... The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer much talk with you. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. You see, John the Baptist did indeed suffer persecution to death. He was treated horrifically by Herod. Herod was an evil and wicked man to do what he did to John. And evil and wicked people will do evil and wicked things to Christians continuing until the Lord comes again. We should be expecting, as Peter said, not that it's some abnormal thing, but something that should be expected by the Christian. If you're truly in Christ, at some point in your life, you're going to encounter some kind of persecution. Not all at the same level. We're not all going to get beheaded like John did. It may be persecution on different levels. How are you going to deal with it? Know that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his Holy Spirit to empower you to live and to walk and to obey his commands, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to honor God with your life. None of us could do that in our flesh alone. We need his Spirit. And that's the purpose. That's the main purpose of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people get all carried away. I grew up in charismatic and Pentecostal churches, and I've seen a lot of abuse of what they call worship of the Holy Spirit, wanting ecstatic experiences, wanting this mountaintop experiences again and again. But what Jesus is saying here is much more of a stable and real thing when you start to sense that he's with you, even in those really dark times, when he carries you through, when you think you couldn't have made it through the day. When you're facing a, a relational crisis with someone and you think, I, can't, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And you go to God's word and his Holy Spirit speaks to you through the word and, and there's a steadiness that comes back in your spirit. And you say, you know what? I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what his word says. That kind of stability is what we, we want to have. Some of that comes with maturity and studying the word and praying over many years. Some people advance at levels faster than others and we don't understand all of that. And so those who are strong need to bear with those of us who are weak. Um, and we need to realize that we're all in this together and all of us advancing at different levels. But all of those things about persecution that Jesus talked about, that Peter talked about, that Paul talked about, that we can expect that should not bring us any sorrow at all, but hope in the promise that Jesus himself sent the Holy Spirit to be your helper, capital H. Advocate. It's a beautiful thing to serve Jesus and know that he's helping us to serve him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I ask that your word being living and active would be to us living and active. That we would have increased